Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail, and we are the active voice of Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Welcome to our weekly podcast. Our mission is to showcase vital women between the ages of 70 to 100 plus who shatter the myth that we become irrelevant as we age. These women lead fulfilling lives for themselves and others. Visit our website, womenover70.com, where you can access all the episodes We also invite you to join our monthly podcast club, and we welcome speaking to your organization or group on Aging Reimagined. If women aging is a market you would like to reach, consider sponsoring an episode. Finally, if you are an author with a book about women, check out our book promotion opportunity. And today we're very happy to be in conversation with Lauren Coodley, age 70, from Napa, California. Lauren taught and now writes through a feminist lens. She invented the Women's Studies program at Napa Community College, where she gained tenure and taught for 35 years. During that time, Lauren researched and published her first books, Napa, The Transformation of an American Town, and the second book, Land of Orange Groves and Jails, Upton, St. Clair's, California. After retiring at age 60, Lauren immersed herself in writing and publishing a trilogy on the history of Napa Valley, a textbook of California history, a biography of Upton Sinclair, whom she reframes as a male feminist, and a book of her own poetry. Writing, along with holistic supplements and support from family and friends, helped Lauren endure year-long treatment for ovarian cancer, currently in remission. And we thank Nancy Manahan, episode 118, for referring us to Lauren. So welcome, Lauren, to Women Over 70. Thank you so much. Yes, we're glad to have you. So, so Lauren, you were among the first generation of women feminist scholars. I think you, I said you invented the Women's Studies program at the community college. And uh, when we talked, you said you were known as the feminist on campus. So could tell us about a little bit about that time and um, ways in which your your female students in particular might have benefited from the courses in your pedagogy? Well, first I'd like to say that um, we really need courses like the ones we were teaching in those days. We need them now. I think young women um, are really, um, you know, it would barely benefit from what we did in those days. And I don't think it's being done that much in the same way anymore. And I'll, I'll kind of explain as I talk, but um, I was very young when I was hired, I was 24 and a group of community women had been pushing and pushing the college to open a women's reentry program and start or offering women's studies classes. And the college had resisted and resisted. And they finally got them to agree to one class or maybe two, and um, they, instead of hiring any of the local women who were, you know, a little older than me and had been fighting with the college, they hired me who lived out of town at the time. I was still um, working on my master's degree in psychology and living in Berkeley when I was hired. 
So in other words, they thought I would be more malleable, younger, more naive than the older women that were community activists. And, you know, ironically, I turned out to be just like the older women and um, (laughs) they weren't able to get rid of me because my union um, fought for uh, tenure for a a group of us part-timers. We were in a class action lawsuit that lasted seven years. Mm. Many people dropped out, all of us part-timers that were in that suit, um, but I never did because um, I loved my work from the first time I set foot in a classroom, and uh, I was willing to wait and work part-time for eight years and the chance that I would get uh, offered tenure, uh, and I, I was offered tenure as the settlement. Um, so some of my friends like Nancy Manahan um, took the back pay and didn't take the job, but I took the job and gave up the back pay. So that's how I became a, um, had a permanent career um, fighting the establishment and teaching women's studies at Napa's junior college. And say a little more about fighting the establishment. What were the, what were the sticking, sticky issues there? Um, in the first years, I would guess, you know, 10, 15 years, everything was run by men um, the history was taught by men, psychology was taught by men, and they were just frankly skeptical, critical, and dismissive of anything that had to do with women's studies. It was a whole totally new idea that they weren't interested in. So, um, that was the main impediment, um, getting these classes moved into the mainstream rather than being electives where, you know, if you didn't get a lot of students, um, they could cancel the class. Mm-hmm. So um, the battle was, you know, to uh, make these classes, you know, required so that um, <clears throat> they they had to offer them. That was, you know, that was one of the fights that I was engaged in. Um, so the legit, the legitimacy of the discipline was one issue and the other was just the survival of, um, what was really regarded as a special interest elective by the powers that be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and then- Lauren, I am, I'm curious, uh, you know, we, a lot of, uh, people hear the term women's studies, but what does it really mean? What, what does it, what, what does it include? Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of why I feel like it's needed today, because, you know, the documents of the second wave of feminism are very plain spoken. They're not, they don't use theory. They're not um, academic. They're very real. They're about what women experience in daily life. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate to have, you know, a multitude of feminist magazines, journals, articles <clears throat> that were very uh, much told from the point of view of uh, the ordinary woman or the common woman as Judy Gron christened her. So um, when I taught psychology of women, for instance, um, we read accounts women had written both fiction and nonfiction about uh, being called crazy, feeling crazy, being treated for madness, um, you know, in oppressive marriages, in oppressive families, in oppressive jobs. And then the students would write about their own experiences of such things. And then they would share that with each other. That was sort of the fundamental way the feminist classroom happened, which I fear is not really being continued in um, 
what's now called women and gender studies. I think it's, you know, a lot more esoteric now. Right. And then, in, you know, women's history, we would read the original documents as written by, um, you know, heroic women, uh, labor leaders, intellectuals, um, housewives, fem, you know, suffragists. And we would do things like act out um, suffragist meetings, have debates as though we were suffragists, read plays out loud that had been written about um, particular women. And the students um, absolutely went crazy. I mean, they felt like they had a history. They had um, foremothers. They, mm-hmm. I can't say how inspired they were. They were totally transformed by that class. And ultimately, I found that um, teaching them history um, inspired them more than finding out about their shared oppression, as valuable as that was in the psychology classes. Mm-hmm. I wonder if men or young, you know, young men ever take these courses. And they always did. And um, although there was occasionally a um, young man who came in to be oppositional because his church had taught him that women were inferior, much more often there were men. Uh, young men whose mothers had been oppressed, who felt a lot of identification with their mothers, and who asked me for examples of feminist men or men who had supported feminism. Mm-hmm. That's what led to my interest in Upton Sinclair when I realized he was such a man. Tell us about Upton, because I, I have to admit, when you and I talked, Lauren, I did not, I did not know that Upton Sinclair was a feminist. You know, it's so bittersweet because I worked for literally 20 years accumulating Sinclair scholarship, um, applying for grants, uh, getting a fellowship, um, writing a book proposal, writing a book, and then trying to publicize the book, Um, which despite its good reviews from, you know, Kirkus, etc., I was never able to get the attention for it that I thought it deserved. And it's very heartbreaking to me because I thought, you know, once I actually have a book, then I'll be able to put Sinclair into history the way he should be mm-hmm. as a as a feminist ally. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you haven't heard this is indicative of the fact that I failed, but it wasn't for lack of trying. Now, was that both Land of Orange Girls and Jails and the biography? Yes. You have two, yeah, two publications yes. about it. Yes. Mm-hmm. So um, the way he was a feminist was first that his mother, um, he was a child of an alcoholic. So his mother took him to temperance marches and taught him that alcohol basically is evil. And he agreed and became an ardent um, temperance advocate, which, as you probably know, was a feminist movement Mm -hmm. led by Frances Willard. then later, and when he became a socialist, he became friends with um, leading uh, figures in uh, labor and uh, suffrage movements, such as uh, Inez Milholland, Helen Keller, Margaret Sanger. These were all intimate friends with years and years of correspondence between them. And, you know, what I found is that contrary to the image of many male writers or radicals who are constantly being um, eulogized, he never tried to take advantage of these women and he remained a staunch friend to them and sometimes a financial supporter and always felt like they were in a mutual struggle. So I thought it was really notable um, that 
he had done this, that he had had a book written about him, his first biography in 1927, in which mm. referred to him as a feminist. Mm. Wow. And um, honestly, I'm very grateful to this podcast for letting me um, bring attention to my work on Upton Sinclair again. And, and, it, and now I, I do have a website, laurencoodley.com, which um, has the title of my book and, and links to all my books, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we will be, be sure to include that in the, when we when we publish your or release your your episode too, Lauren. And and thank you for so much for that because you know it's it, the women's studies. We we were always looking for representation from women, and as you were saying, the the common woman and the stories of women's lived experiences. I have to admit, in my own teaching, I don't think I ever really looked for male. Mm-hmm. male voices so yeah I had a little folder called um men who supported women uh and which I put little articles you know I've been teaching such a long time since 75 and Ms. Magazine was such a um wonderful and helpful publication they would have you know little things like stories for free children or feminist men they would have these articles that I cut out and put in my files um that really told the story very beautifully about um, allies. And as I say, it was extremely moving to me that many young men, um, you know, sought out my class out of <laughs> identification with women's struggles. Yes. So, yeah. This is why I feel like classes like this really should continue. Yeah. And I, I certainly agree with you um, about not wanting to get so steeped in the esoteric and the, the abstract academic, but try to stay focused on the lived experiences of women. Mm-hmm. I think um, that also there's kind of two things. There's the content and then there's the practice of the feminist mm-hmm. classroom. Mm-hmm. And I was really interested in that. And, you know, there was a tremendous um, dialogue that happened about what's, you know, what is a feminist classroom, how to run one, how, you know, what's fair, how do you handle grading, um, you know, many, many interesting and important issues. How do you empower women through the educational experience? This is what I was really interested in. Mm-hmm. I think those issues, those questions persist. Yes. So you, uh, you, you gained tenure and you wrote, uh, we've heard a little bit about Upton Sinclair. You also wrote uh, about Napa and you made local history, or you, you, told me, you said that you told me that you made local history political in your book on um, Napa, the transformation of an American town, being one mm-hmm. of them. So, and I, it, both praise and criticism. Is there anything you want to tell us about that experience? Oh, yeah, I could probably take an hour talking about that. <laughs> because um, when you get the invitation to write the history of any town, um, for us, feminist historians, obviously, it's an invitation to, um, you know, as Emily Dickinson wrote, tell it slant, you know, use our own point of view, highlight the people that we believe have not been, you know, included. If you look Mm -hmm. at any typical volume of local history, it's a a dull recital of the town founders, and maybe Mm -hmm. their wives are mentioned, but obviously, it's all about the men. Mm -hmm. So I just tried to turn that around and write about the interesting people that I um, had heard about or knew and the struggles that had um, happened in Napa. Um, 
you know, I made some errors because it was my first book. And because I, um, I mean, I, I think my main error was related to the Vietnam War, because I wasn't here in Napa during that period. And I was so thrilled to find out there had been an anti-war movement. I mean, Napa was a very rural town in the 70s that nobody ever visited. And yet there was a very thriving and ardent, um, you know, not only peace movement, but an anti-war movement, um, later a feminist movement. So I wanted to highlight those things because I thought it was really important to see how these um, struggles had uh, been uh, developed in small towns like mine. Mm -hmm. So perhaps predictably, people who had uh, been pro-war at that period um, objected to the emphasis in the book on the anti-war movement. Mm -hmm. Um, Just like, um, you know, history is being contested today about how it's taught in school. Mm-hmm. So some of these people orchestrated an attack on me um, for this representation of the 60s in the book and basically tried to get me fired. Oh, my. Did that work? Um, I was put under investigation and I was removed from my um, supervisory position, which meant that I was not able to hire um, anyone to continue in my work as a history teacher. And there's still no woman history teacher that's Mm -hmm. tenured uh, and nobody teaching history the way I did. So yeah, there was a pretty heavy price for it. That is a, that is a heavy price. When you, um, you're, you're you're 70 now, you retired 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. correct? Yes. And, and then immersed yourself quite fully in writing and, and publishing. Um, so tell us a little bit about this this era for you. Okay. Um, well, as I kind of hinted, it was somewhat of a forced retirement because um, I was really fighting the powers there who, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, were very opposed to me. And as an older woman, I didn't have the... Uh, you know, perhaps the agency that I would have had when I was younger. I wasn't seen as a formidable antagonist. I mean, I had a huge amount of support. I was elected three times to run my division and the president uh, overturned the election and told me mm-hmm. he didn't have to tell me why. Wow. So um, after that, uh, really, I, I had to leave and never go back. And I was never invited back and I was never included in any hiring decisions, even though I had, you know, been in charge of my division for quite a few years. Mm -hmm. That was extremely painful. So the only way that I really could recover from that was to try to write the biography of Upton Sinclair that I'd been working on for 20 years and get Mm -hmm. it published. And also to fortunately uh, help raise my grandchildren who live next door to me. And um, I became very involved in their lives, which was, you know, very healing for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So um, I just, I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your personal life, um, both, but say a little more about raising your grandchildren. And it was this from a, a young, their, their young age, are they still... You still living near them? Um, one of them was a baby when I retired. And so I took over his care so that my daughter could go back to work. So I was with him um, half the day, every day. 
um, for the first two years. And me and the other grandma shared uh, childcare responsibilities. Um, yeah, it was great because when I was a young mother, I was working often two jobs. I, mm. you know, was in what's called the gig economy now, but I, you know, I worked a variety of part-time jobs before I got tenure. So I was always gone. And because I wasn't, I was disliked for uh, my women's studies advocacy. I was always given like nighttime classes as well as day classes. So I was just gone a lot. I, mm. I didn't really, you know, watch my children grow up as much as try to find childcare all the time so that I could go to work. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I got to be with a young child and, a, and an infant um, and in that slow way where, you know, it can take forever to get through a morning, but it's full of all kinds of, um, you know, quiet pleasures. Mm -hmm. So I felt like I got the chance to, you know, raise children, uh, you know, without having to work which was, you know, very interesting. Mm -hmm. Sounds rewarding. Yeah. And I was able to, because my daughter was having an active career out of town, you know, I was able to pick their extracurricular activities, take them to them and, um, you know, very much participate in their lives. I walked my grandson to school every day until mm -hmm. the pandemic mm -hmm. last oh, year. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. So um, Lauren, Another another personal note, you know, many of our, our guests, and I'm, I would imagine our listeners also have dealt with serious illness, and um, you, you've had experience with that uh, recently. Mm -hmm. what, what, would, what would you like to share about that? Um, well, you asked me to read a poem. I could read a poem. Okay. Um, this, this is a poem, the first poem I wrote after I had a hysterectomy for um, ovarian cancer, and as luck would have it or not, it was the very day that the world closed down that I had my hysterectomy. Um, in other words, it was March 13th last mm -hmm. year. And um, all of a sudden, my daughter wasn't allowed in my hospital room or allowed to be with me as we had been told she would be. Mm -hmm. And um, the hospital was in such chaos that basically we walked out the next morning without ever even being checked out because the nurses were protesting that they were, you know, having to take care of COVID patients without protection. And it was a totally crazy situation. So I came home to enormous pain because I was, you know, recovering from surgery as well as being told that the cancer was more advanced than they had originally thought. So I, you know, I think I was shell shocked on all kinds of levels, ovarian cancer has no um, symptoms. Mm -hmm. And I have become a huge advocate that women should be routinely screened for ovarian cancer, which I was not. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of the ways in which women's health is devalued is that we are not screened or even told um, what the symptoms are. Um, so anyway, this is a poem that's called On Losing My Female Organs, because um, I, yeah, it's what I was aware of. Okay. Rust red smell of iron, blood is seeping out of me as though I was 20 or 30 or 40 before it all stopped flowing. Sticky feeling the smell, nothing else like it meant I'm not approachable tonight, that the egg is dropping out of me. Only, only there are no more eggs, no more ovaries to hold them, no more children to be made. 
but oh, the smell of iron, the sticky, slow stain that once upon a time said I was a woman for real. Here now to mourn the absence of all those parts and to feel the emptiness inside where the cancer inside my organs was carved out, leaving only the slow seep of blood, iron scented, feral, female. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. That's very, very powerful. Yes. So, so are later you... I wrote, go ahead. No, please go ahead. So later I wrote what I would call the cancer series, which documented um, the experience of chemo and um, uh, the suffering that chemo entailed and the experience of getting it. And, um, you know, also some feelings of joy when it was over and, um, you know, I was in remission for now. Um, a friend of mine are, and I are co-publishing um, a book of poems. I put some of these cancer poems in it. She has some of her poems in it and it's going to be published by Cordella press, which is uh -huh. a um, feminist magazine that also does publishing. Mm. So it'll be coming out sometime this year. Um, I hope, please let us know when it does come out because we would like to make, make people aware of it. Yes, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yes. And so um, in the few minutes we have left, left Lauren, how do you now think about your, your, your aging, about aging, if you do think about it and Kind of what do you see? What do you anticipate on your horizon? Well, you know, it's interesting because my grandmother, who I adored, lived to be 99, and I don't expect to live that long. And it's, you know, it's 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 poignant for me because, you know, I may be in the last few years of my life, and my grandma had, you know, like 29 years more after mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Um, and and she was born in 1903. So you know, I have always been outraged about the epidemic of cancer in women, about breast cancer particularly, which my mother had, and um, about the cancer epidemic in the U.S. I've, you know, done numerous workshops at work about why this is happening. Um, so on a more personal basis, um, I feel um, many things. Um one is, of course, I want more time. Two is I worry about what the world's going to be like in the future. Mm -hmm. um, three is I want to um, I want to try to value the time I have and really, you know, live um, live fully. Um, Elizabeth Kubler Ross was one of my heroes. I used to show her films about death and dying all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, she had a great, you know, line to live until you die. And, and that's very inspiring to me. Always has been. Mm -hmm. And then are there, there particular ways that you, you will be, or are, will be living your life? I love, I like the live, live until we die. Yes. Well, it's been, you know, complicated by the pandemic. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, I haven't really gone anywhere, been out of my house, except for medical treatment since um, March of last year. Mm. So um, I think the world has changed in such a complicated way. You know, somebody just died who was fully vaccinated, but immune compromised a woman my age in Napa. Mm. 
So I don't know whether it's safe for me. Uh What I try to do is, um, you know, deeply enjoy, you know, the trees and the birds in my backyard, read books by writers that I've just discovered in the last few years. I'm always reading and always have new writers and, um, you know, participate in life. um, But, you know, in a, in a somewhat protected way, because Mm -hmm. um, I am immune compromised. I'm on permanent um, chemo now. Ah, okay. Permanent chemo? Is that what you said? Chemo, yeah. There's a, there's a, there's an anti-cancer drug that I'm taking. That's, Mm -hmm. that's considered chemo. Yeah. Sounds rough. Oh, it isn't. I, 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 I'm, very grateful to be alive. All the friends I've known who've had cancer are no longer here. So I feel lucky that uh, there's new technologies, just like the uh, incredible vaccines that have saved us all. So I'm, I'm very fortunate. From all of these experiences you've had, uh, is there anything that you would, you'd like to tell your younger self or even our younger listeners? Don't take chances. (laughs) I took a lot of chances when I was a young woman. I did a lot of hitchhiking. I lived a very um, risky lifestyle. Um, I thought that I was invincible um, because I had been a tomboy. I was very adventurous. And, you know, I almost died a number of times because I didn't understand how dangerous the world is for women and girls. Mm So did you say don't take chances or do take, don't? (laughs) I mean, um, yeah, I I think that we have to protect our women and girls until we um, live in a safer um, world for for women. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. that Handmaid's Tale is is giving a very vivid portrait of what might be the future or what is the present. Mm -hmm. So I might be the only person who would say this, but. Um, I'm happy with the things I did with my career. What I mean more is in personal life. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Risky behavior as, as a young woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you could be describing many of us who were coming of age during that time. Okay. Well, <laughs> so I'd you're like not alone. Conversation about that sometime. <laughs> Just not because, alone uh, on that one. It would be great to debrief with other women who survived the the seventies. <laughs> yes, and I don't mean age seventy. I mean the yeah, the, the era. The yes, yeah. definitely. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for being with us today. This is we've really learned a great deal from your yes. your stories and your perspectives, and we really appreciate it so much. Thank you so much for being interested in talking to me and to our friend Nancy for referring me to you. I had kind of given up that anyone would ever want to talk to me. Oh, no. Nobody has. I'm, I'm really glad. <laughs> I'm really glad. Thank you so much for being on the show. Okay. Yeah. Good luck with everything. And I'm going to try to support you every way I can. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So listeners, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Become an active participant in our community through our Facebook group. And no matter your age, participate in our monthly Zoom gatherings. You'll find everything you need to know about our Women Over 70 community 
on womenover70.com. See you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myth that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com.